Before we get into the text today, um, on the back of your bulletin, lots of announcements. You can read them all. The one at the top, we talked about last week and talk about it again. We need Sunday school teachers. Okay. I was talking to Julie. And uh, in the last six years, our children's ministry has about doubled. We're now up between, depending on the Sunday, 105 to 120 children. And that's doubled. And so we need help. So you don't have to teach every Sunday. We have a curriculum to guide you. But we could sure use your help. So please be praying about that. When I went to Dallas Seminary, I was simply a student. And so I wasn't allowed to teach adult classes because the churches were full of Dallas graduates. So I said, well, I'll teach the four and five-year-olds. And it was one of the best things I ever did. Taught the four and five-year-olds. They're a lot more fun than you. <laughs> and honestly, they're a lot smarter than you. So... They get, the, they get the principles that, that fast. You guys have to go, what were you saying? <laughs> so think about helping us out and teaching. We could sure use it. You can fill out the uh, tear-off here if you want. Put that in the offering basket or give it to me or their phone numbers for both Julie and Stefan. Stefan works with the teenagers. And they both could use our help. So um, think about that. Our children love the adults and so do our teens when they come in. Okay, today we're talking about marriage and family. We're in a series, Thinking with Integrity, okay, for or against. Um, Now, you may think that, well, this is a pretty easy topic, isn't it? Well, excuse me, I'm fighting a cold, I'll tell you right up front. This is one of the most controversial areas in our culture right now. Think about these questions. What do we do with the legalization of gay marriage? Was it appropriate? Was it not? And I know our church is divided on these questions because I have time to meet with you guys. What about rights for mothers and unwed mothers? What about sex before marriage or friends with benefits? That's a question I get often. About appropriate reasons for divorce. Is abuse one of those appropriate reasons for that? The church is uh, somehow struggling with that. Should rights between traditional marriages be the same as the rights of gay marriages or civil unions? Should the state even be involved in the marriage business? Hmm, that's an interesting one. Should we give rights to singles that are only enjoyed by marriages? Well, you'll be happy to know we're not going to address any of these issues. (laughs) Yep, I'm a chicken. (laughs) Nope, nope, not that at all. These issues are very complex. To uh, help you navigate it, what we're going to do is look at the Bible to see what God's plan is for a Christian marriage. And then you can begin to work through with your own belief system, your own theology, what you think about these areas. So if you understand what a Christian marriage is, or the fundamental Christian I want, question I want to ask today is, what makes a Christian marriage a Christian? You know, in all the years of teaching, I'm really astounded that very few people can answer that question. The typical answer is, well, we have the Holy Spirit. Well, doesn't a non-Christian marriage have the Holy Spirit? Not in the same way, but doesn't the Holy Spirit, doesn't the Lord love every person on the planet? Something very different about Christian marriages, and we're going to have to work through what is that. Now, remember, if you've heard my teaching up here at all, you know that I do not trust the media even a little bit. I don't. And so I am convinced that the media is working overtime to tell us what to think, to define right from wrong, and to shape our culture And I largely disagree with many of the things I hear. We just read Ephesians 3. We're going to read it again. We believe differently. So let's put Ephesians 3 back up there. His intent was that now through the church. Now listen to that. 
not through the media. His intent, this is the mystery of God that was revealed to the New Testament authors. God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and with confidence. We believe differently. It is not the government or the media's responsibility to tell us how to think. It's just the opposite. As the people of God, it is our responsibility to reveal true morality to a broken world. Now, we asked, uh, we had dinner with Tim and Linda last night. Tim said, okay, I'm reading Ephesians 3. What's it got to do with marriage? Okay, Ephesians 3 says that it's through us, the church, that the manifold wisdom of God would be revealed. Chapter 4, he talks about unity and holiness. I'll come back to that. And then he presents marriage as the very first step in that. You see, the very beginning of our testimony is our marriage. That's the very beginning. Our marriages. If our marriages are failing, we've already lost our testimony. That's the very first step. And if our marriage divorce rate is the same as the world, we are now telling the world we no longer believe our own theology. And therefore, why pay attention? So now hear me again. If our divorce rate is the same as the world, we've just told the uh, the world that we do not believe our own theology about marriage. So Paul and Jesus both make a high point of marriage to illustrate that it is our first our first card that we show, we display to the world around us. It's the first thing that they see is our marriages. And so it's, it's imperative, it's critical that we take care of the marriages. I have said all the time I've been here, if we only do two things right, have the right elders in place and take care of our marriages. Because if we take care of our marriages and our marriages are healthy, guess what? All these ancillary struggles begin to dissipate. Everything from abuse, divorce, adultery, pornography, they all begin to dissipate if our marriages are healthy and happy. And so rather than treating all those ancillary issues, let's deal with the core, the very beginning of our testimony, and then those things, many of them will begin to take care of themselves. Next week, we're going to talk about the Me Too movement, what's going on nationally. And the week after that, we're talking about sexual assault in the Old Testament. So fair warning, if you don't want your children here, I'm just letting you know. It's up to you because the Bible talks about it. We need to address it. We need to get these things on the table. You know me. I'm not afraid to talk about anything from up here. So I'm just giving you fair warning of what's coming. So it's our job to show the world what true morality is all about. There's no way we can figure it out on our own. What we think is intrinsic to us and normal is not. Okay, I think C.S. Lewis was correct when he argued that um, all of us have a moral compass. It's just broken. So we can't find true north. And so the only way we can find true north is when God speaks or acts in our, in our uh, people group, in our culture, in our world. And he's done that through the word. And so the word points the way to true north. It helps us to see what true north looks like. And then as we begin to live it out, we become God's agent in the world to show them what morality looks like and how much joy comes from living a moral life. So where do we start? Well, where have we started with all these topics? Two concepts, dignity and a flourishing community. Every human has dignity. 
We're made in the image of God. We're actually going to come back to that one in a little bit. We're all made in the image of God. Every human you talk to has dignity and worthy of showing love to them. Jesus didn't die for only the good people. He died for, well, there weren't any. <laughs> he died for everybody. We were enemies, and he died for us. And so every person you meet is worth having the discussion and showing dignity, being curious. Ask them why they think what they think. It doesn't matter how hostile they are or how oppositional they are to you. It doesn't matter. Love them. Want to be, find out what they believe. Ask them those questions, and you'll find it to be very delightful. But the other area is a flourishing community. And that is that we can show the world what true Christianity looks like by the way we shape our own culture right here. If our marriages are strong and healthy and our people are happy and we find that joy that's supposed to be present and we're, we're living out that grace which seems so elusive, the world, they will wonder why. What is unique and different? And they can see the kingdom of God at work. And so it's absolutely vital that this church be healthy. And we spend a lot of time, you just saw all those elders standing. We spend a lot of time praying for you, talking about what's going on, uh, analyzing what's happening in culture that might become a threat to us. We do all that as elders. And that's the reason, because we want to have a community here that's safe and is flourishing, is healthy. Okay, so does the Bible help us with the concept of marriage? Absolutely. But first, I want to begin with a tension. The Bible has two very strong convictions that are in tension with one another. One of those is that marriage is good and right. Right? It's not good for the man to be alone, so I'm going to make a woman. Okay? So marriage is, is displayed in Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The whole Bible is bracketed by marriage, so we know it's important. But also, Paul argued very, very persuasively that singleness is good as well. And those are in tension with one another. So let me say a word about singles before we jump into marriage. How many of you here are singles? Let me see your hands. Okay, we have several. Very good. I'm so glad you're here. You know, Paul argued that a single has advantages that married couples do not have. The moment we commit ourselves to a spouse, we have divided interests. It's no longer a matter of just serving the Lord. Um, I can't just pick up my family and go to Africa to serve the Lord. I might have some marital conflict or marital bliss or depending on where I'm going. And so we have divided interests, and we always have to balance that and weigh that out. So a good portion of Scripture is helping us balancing those divided interests. Singles, on the other hand, don't have that. They have a unique focus on the Lord. But the second thing, which I think is, a, is astounding to me, is that singles who have learned to enjoy the intimacy of the Lord outside of marriage when they really learn that, they become a picture for us of what eternity is going to look like. They're the closest we can see in this fallen world of what it means to enjoy the intimacy and the richness of a relationship with God that's not shared with anyone else. And so we should honor our singles. I love having singles. I know life is tough for you in many ways, but you're a picture to us and you show us things that we can't see very well. Remember, the glass is dark and it's hard to see. So all that to say, we need to honor our singles. 
And as we start talking about marriage, many of these principles that we're going to bring up today, we can, we can help our singles with by providing that type of community around them so that they experience some of these same things. So, what makes a Christian marriage Christian? What is it? Um, I mentioned in Ephesians 3, which we read, that the, the way the world comes to know true Christianity is by looking at us. And then in Ephesians 4, it talks about holiness and unity as very critical things. Then you jump into Ephesians 5, and he identifies that the most visible place in the kingdom where this unity and holiness come together is in a marriage. Okay, Ephesians 5.31 For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ in the church. So the way the world can learn about this, this, new, this new creation, this new covenant lifestyle, this, this kingdom of God, is by looking at our marriages. That's where they can see it, because our marriages are a reflection of Christ in the church. Um, we know that marriage was present in the original creation, but we know that it's been renewed in Jesus under the new covenant. And so if anyone is in Christ, they're part of the new creation. So they should be able to look at our marriages and see the new creation at work in the way we connect and relate to each other. That's what they should see. This means that our marriages serve as a sign and a symbol, if you will, an example of the new creation to a lost and tired world. How else can they see it? How else can they see it? That's why if our marriages are failing at the same rate as the world, then our words mean nothing. We have nothing to demonstrate it. Nothing at all. So our marriages are our first and foremost important display to the world of our belief in who the Lord is. Okay, so I'm going to give you three terms. We're going to talk about all three of them. And these three terms are true of every human that gets married. But for the Christian, they have an added dimension. So when the Holy Spirit comes into a relationship, if the marriage is done well, then these these three terms, they, they show something to the world that the unbelievers don't see. They can't have it. The first one is the concept of one flesh. Genesis 2.24. We just read it in Ephesians. Here it is in Genesis. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Okay? Both Jesus and Paul quoted this verse to talk about it. So when we start talking about one flesh, <clears throat> yes, at, at one level... At one level, we are talking about physical intimacy. There's no question about that. But something very different is happening as well. Uh, in both Hebrew and Greek, the emphasis is on the one rather than the flesh. Okay? It's a coming together and producing something that the world longs to have, this type of unity. It's far more than going our separate ways in marriage. So I've seen many marriages where you got the husband and the wife doing their thing apart from each other. No, it's something more than that. It's more, it's more engaged. It's more intricate. It's more intricate than that. Jesus quotes this verse in Matthew 19 before he discusses divorce. Remember, he was asked about divorce. And so he didn't start with divorce. He starts with this verse right here. To show that it is important to remember 
that the bond that is created uh, is created by God. That's important to remember that before you move into the role of divorce. Now, let me just pause and say, I know that several of you out here are divorced. We will always show grace, and there are appropriate times when divorce is necessary. I get that, okay? But let me tell you what is not appropriate. I can't take it anymore. That's not a reason to divorce. That's what the world does, okay? There is a legitimate way to walk through divorce in a healthy way. And so if you divorce because you can't take it anymore, for the rest of life, you're going to struggle with it. No one got married to get divorced. And you're going to have questions from then on. You're going to have doubts. You're going to have worries and wonders. And so if you're on that road, let's talk. There's a legitimate way to walk away so that your soul remains clean. Okay? And there is appropriate time. Jesus did make that clear. Um, and so we need to, we just need to remember that you're separating a bond that was created on purpose. And that's very intricate and complex. Uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, uses the same verse to argue that sex is far more than a physical act. Uh, the sexual act for him has an effect on our spirituality. And in 1 Corinthians 6, he explains this using the concept of a prostitute. So our, the sexual act, the intimate act in marriage, is analogous to our relationship with Christ. Because we begin to get bound together in a very intricate, intimate, and wonderful way. And that's a picture of what we are supposed to be like in, uh, in our marriages. This is captured very nicely in the Old Testament. Some of you remember the older, the older uh, translations where they used the word knowing instead of having uh, intimate relations. So uh, Adam, right? Well, the word for uh, sexual intercourse is the same word as to know someone. And so when you, when you are intimately involved with somebody, you know them. You know them really well. Okay? I'm not going to get into the Friends with Benefits discussion right now. You're welcome to meet with me and we can talk about it. But this is one of those places where Friends with Benefits is not a matter of physical act. It's, it's not that at all. It involves the whole being. <clears throat> and you are hurting yourself by being involved by being involved with several people. God didn't design it that way. So <clears throat> when you combine... When you combine this concept um, of one flesh with the Holy Spirit, it is one, this is one of those aspects that makes this uh, a Christian marriage, makes it unique. One flesh means the total bonding of the whole person with another, which is what happens with Christ. We become so, in it, so connected that it actually can never be separated. Those of you that are divorced know what I'm talking about. You always have that question. Always. It can't be separated. The goal is not to eradicate individual personhood. That's never the goal. The goal, rather, in marriage is to create a context, this one flesh, this unity, a context that is so close that you help each other out. You shape each other in Christ, if you will. You see, we find our true sense of identity in the opposite sex. So masculinity is best defined in the context of femininity and vice versa. I've told several of you, men and women, it doesn't matter. You want to know what it's like to, if you want to know if you're pretty, don't go look at the female magazines. Ask the guys. Let us tell you. Same with men. Because when you start letting men decide what masculinity looks like, then all of a sudden you're finding yourself moving in a direction that uh, women, they don't particularly like. Nancy and I went on a cruise one time. We go regularly, but one of the early cruises, we made a commitment to do things that was outside of our comfort zone. 
The other person got to pick. So I got to go to a jazzercise class. Oh, man. First thing that we did wrong was we were 60 seconds late. So he stood out like a sore thumb. I was the only guy in the class. There's like 30 of these young women. We walked to the back of the class, and I'm trying to, to do the, the thing, you know. <clears throat> and <clears throat> I immediately realized there's a mirror at the front of the class. And I'm a foot taller than everybody in the class, so everybody can see me. But that's not the worst part. I'm against a glass wall. On the other side of the wall is a basketball court. So a guy comes over. So literally, he, I'm here and he's here. He's two feet away in his glass. He catches a basketball and he looks over and he goes. <laughs> it rates as one of the most embarrassing moments of life. After it was over, I got out to the side of the ship as fast as I jump over the side, I'm done. And a bunch of these young women came out and they said, um, this is your first time, isn't it? It's obvious, huh? I said, yeah, it is. They said, why did you come to the class? And I said, well, and Nancy's sitting there grinning from ear to ear, loving every minute of it. And I said, well, we made a commitment to, um, to do things that were outside of her comfort zone. And she asked me to do this, and I said, okay. And they all sat there, and they said, who is our boyfriends were like that? Our boyfriend were getting drunk because I think that impresses us playing basketball, doing all this. And this is really what impresses us right here. Okay? That's what I mean. We find our identity in the context of the opposite sex. Next day, I went back. There were five young guys in the class with me. By the grace of God, I've never had to do that since. <laughs> you see, as we <clears throat> sacrifice for each other and put each other first, we begin to shape each other into the image of Christ. Uh, I am so grateful after 35 years of having a wife who looks me in the eyes and say, why did you say that to me? It's kind of out of your character. What did you mean just then? I thought you had more integrity than that. And I have a wife for 35 years who has helped shape me. I am who I am today because of Nancy and partnership with the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't always like the way she says it, but it is sure valuable. I can tell you that. And it has shaped me in a whole different direction than I've ever, I ever would have thought of. We've prayed many times and laughed and said, the Lord has blessed us beyond our wildest dreams. We never conceived 35 years ago that we would have what we have today. And partly because we allowed each other to shape us. And that's a principle in most marriage, most marriage uh, um, books now, is that you have to allow the other person to shape you. That's what one flesh is all about. And with the Spirit, we shape each other into the image of Christ. We become true human. We become more gracious, more forgiving, more loving. Okay. In fact, not too long ago, last fall, Nancy said something that hurt me, and I responded quicker than my brain could act. And I stormed out of the bedroom. I got about six feet down the hallway, and I said, wait a minute. This is your best friend. 
What are you doing? I went right back in there and I said, okay, I'm sorry for what just happened. Even though she said the mean thing at that time. Um, <clears throat> she doesn't mind me sharing this. Um, I, I'm sorry for what just happened. I know you well enough to know that the only time you say something like that is when you're trying to keep your head above water. And I didn't need to just put a 50-pound boulder in your backpack and tell you what I I didn't have to respond that way. So I'm sorry. So everything I have on my calendar today, I can move to tomorrow. It's not that important. So I'd like to spend the day helping you lighten your load to get your head back above water. And at the end of the day, she said, you really wanted to do that, didn't you? Lighten the load. And I said, I did. Why would I not want to sacrifice for her? Why wouldn't I want to do that? She's my best friend. Right? So this becomes a picture for the lost world of what it means to shape each other into the image of Christ. We form each other because we're so close. One flesh. We see everything about all the flaws and choose to love each other anyway. So one flesh is very important. But with the spirit dimension, it reveals something to the world that they can't see anyplace else. Okay, the second term is covenant. The concept of covenant lies at the core of biblical theology. In fact, what do we talk about here? This is the Bible with an old, what? Testament and a new testament. That's the word for covenant. Old covenant under the Mosaic law and the new covenant under the spirit. So the very heart of Christian theology is covenant oriented. It fundamentally has the idea of mutual commitment to one another. For the Christian, our marriages mirror the divine human covenant experienced in Christ. And how does that happen? I look Nancy in the eyes and I say, I love you and I'm committed to you. And there's not a single thing you can do that will ever make me stop. Nothing. My faith in God and my commitment to the covenant supersedes whatever happens in our marriage. Because that's the only way the world can see what it means for God to covenant himself with us and never give up on us. There's no other way. You can talk all day long, but the world doesn't need words. They need examples. They need examples. So it has this fundamental idea of mutual commitment to one another. For the Christian, our marriages mirror that. Christ loves us and never gives up on his covenant. This is why divorce should be considered very sparingly and not a common option, only as a very last resort. Now, some of you know, because I've walked with you, we will show grace. If you're on the verge of divorce, come talk to us. We're not going to try to talk you out of it. Our goal is not to save your marriage. That's between you and your spouse. Our goal is to help you do it in a way that protects the sanctity of you as a Christian. And there is a legitimate way to do it. Don't just walk out. In other words, quite the opposite. As Christians, we should have a very high view of marriage and understand it as a covenant relationship. In Ephesians 5, the concept of marriage is expressed in terms of sacrifice. Look at Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Pause. What's one thing that Christ did in his own best interests in the years he lived on the earth? You'll look long and hard to find nothing. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her 
to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. You see, Ephesians 5, contrary to the world around us, the concept of marriage is expressed in terms of sacrifice, not negotiation. That's how the world looks at marriage. You negotiate and compromise. But for the Christian, we need to look at marriage as sacrifice. Everything Jesus did was for sacrifice. Everything. And Nancy and I are married, and I try as hard as I can to sacrifice for her. Now, honestly, you know why? Because she's so self-contained and responsible. All she had to do was say, would you take the trash out? I'd be glad to do it. But I look up, the trash is already out. And so I have to look for ways to jump into the relationship because she just does it and say, let me do that. Why would I not want to sacrifice for my best friend? Why would I not want to? When's the last time you took your spouse, looked him in the eyes and said, I love you and I am committed to you even more importantly, no matter what happens. So, This means that the standard is higher for Christians than non-Christians because we bear a divine responsibility to reflect the goodness of the Lord and that covenant to the world. This means that when the world looks at our marriages, they should see an unyielding commitment to each other. This shows what a loving God acts like in our lives. He loves us no matter what. You may find it a surprise, but you weren't easy to love. Your enemies. That's how Paul describes it. Enemies of Christ. And yet he sacrificed anyway. Okay, the third term is image bearing. We find this in Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. There it is. In our likeness. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So that they may together rule. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So the concept of image fundamentally means that we represent something else. So in Christian theology, it has the idea of both dignity and special relationship. We begin to image God when we show dignity because God shows us dignity. The greatest way he showed Adam and Eve dignity was to give them a choice. He didn't expect them to be robots. He gave them a choice. And so we model that. So while all humans share with image, share this concept of image bearing, we're all made in the image of God. When the Holy Spirit comes into the picture, there's a much deeper sense. When we move into the New Testament, we learn that this concept of image bearing is not a commodity. It's a way of relating. That's what we learn. I'm not going to defend that today. I will if you want to. We can sit down and talk about it. But our image bearing comes in the way we relate to one another. And so this is captured with two ideas. Like God, we are consistently to move toward each other and redeem each other. Redeem means somebody's in trouble and you're going to go help them. Okay? You're going to go help them. And so we move toward our spouses for the purpose of helping them. You know, it's interesting that God is an initiatory God. He never waits. He always moves toward us. And all the verbs in the New Testament capture that. We are to love one another, not be loved by one another. 
We're to forgive one another, not be forgiven by one another. We're to carry one another's burdens, not have our burdens carried by one another. The list goes on and on. The verbs are all active. We are to be initiating in relationships and moving toward people. And we're very terrible at that as Americans. One of the things I hear consistently over coffee is I'm just waiting for somebody else to love me. Well, get off your seat and go love somebody else. Right? No one ever calls me. Who's the last person you called? Pursue people. Walk up to people and say, you know, I don't know you very well. Can I treat you to coffee? I'd love to hear your story. That's what a Christian is like. We are to initiate toward each other, not wait the other way around. And in a healthy marriage, that is at the very core of this concept of being an image bearer because we're reflecting the Lord and He always initiates. So we move toward our spouses, not wait for them. The second key idea is that like Jesus, we are to reflect God's glory in the way we relate to each other. When we move with initiation and sacrifice toward the other person and not wait, that automatically produces glory. The world can see it because they're not used to it. To quote my good friend Mark Hill, been married 35 years, 27 of them happily. (laughs) Marriage is tough. It's tough, but these are the basic principles. And we demonstrate what true humanity looks like in the way we work together in our marriages. All right, just to summarize those three areas. As we develop godly marriages, the following happens. As image bearers, we bear the image of God. When we work together, we reflect the true God to our friends and neighbors we care about. Number one. Number two, when we live in commitment with each other, we reflect the commitment and sacrifice that God shows toward us. And that should establish safety. We have a God who cares. Nancy loves the fact that I'm just committed to her. I joke with her. I have have girlfriends all over the world. But I only have one who I'm committed to. Only one. And she knows it. That brings a sense of security. Number three, as we practice this one flesh, this intimacy, we demonstrate how we shape each other toward Christ. Because there's nobody better equipped to help you shape than your spouse. Just ask them. I can sit with Nancy and I can say, do you think I'm humble? And she'll give me the truth. Where does arrogance show up in our marriage? And she'll tell me. In what ways do I hurt you? She'll tell me. She has a clear picture because she's right there. There's nobody better placed in the world than your spouse to highlight who you are. Now, it's not always fun to hear, but boy, is it good. Now, we talked about Ephesians 3, that God reveals his wisdom through the church. But look what it says at the end of Ephesians, verse 20. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, okay, pause. Think about this in your marriages right here. It's a great benediction before he hit. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. To him be the glory in the church. Ooh, did you hear that? I don't know why. But God has decided in his wisdom to reveal his glory to this world through us. A broken community. Isn't that amazing? 
To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, not just now, forever. He has decided to reveal his glory through us. If our divorce rate equals that of the world, we have shot ourselves in the foot as a church. So wherever you happen to be, this is a core value of our church, wherever you happen to be in your marriage, you can always make it better. If you're on the verge of divorce, come talk to me. Some of you have. You'll find grace. My goal is not to save your marriage. My goal is to help protect the sanctity that you live life with. So that when it's done, it's done in such a way that's honoring to the Lord. If your marriage is not what you want it to be, don't be ashamed. My marriage has been there many times. Come talk to me. We'll help you. We have the resources to help. Our marriages are critical to be a flourishing community. Okay, now, with that as an anchor, evaluate all the media titles around you, headlines, and see what you think. Father, thank you for sending us your son as a sacrifice and teaching us what it means to put someone else first. You just didn't leave us blindly and you didn't even just give us instruction. You actually gave us a model and example so that we can reflect that to our world. And thank you for our church. I love our church. I love our marriages that are struggling well and the growing Uh, And yes, we do have some that that just fail and help us to show grace. And Lord, with the new marriages that you keep bringing into our midst, help us to, uh, to just surround them in love and do everything we can by your grace to help them walk joyfully. You are a good God. We know you to be good. And we are grateful. Thank you for the spouses that you have given us. As you said, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and a blessing from the Lord. Thank you. In your son's name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.